0: stuff podcasts
1: Hi, I'm Michael Wright and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This week's episode is called Killer Blow: The Kirsty Bentley Mystery. It's by two Christchurch-based reporters, Blair Ensor and Martin Van Boenen, share a byline on this one, and Blair joins me now. Hi, Blair. Hi, Mike. This is the part of the episode where you'd usually hear more from Blair setting up the story, but uh, this week, we're changing things up. The story you're about to hear, read by Blair, was published in 2020. Uh, It's a full account of the disappearance and murder of Ashburton teenager Kirsty Bentley in 1998 and the subsequent police investigation. Lots of you will have heard of this case. It's one of New Zealand's most well-known unsolved murders, and there have been some developments. So listen to the story, bear in mind that it's two years old, and you're going to hear some updates afterwards. So here is Blair Ensor reading Killer Blow, The Kirsty Bentley Mystery. There's some strong language and content in there. And after that, Blair and I will discuss the case.
2: On December 31, 1998, 11-year-old Sarah Ward was riding her bike on Chalmers Ave, Ashburton, not far from the Ashburton River. That Thursday it was hot, 34 degrees, and Ashburton locals and their dogs were swimming in the river and staying cool in its green fringes. Holiday traffic along State Highway 1, about 800 metres away, kept up a steady hum. Sarah waved to a small teenage girl who was walking past the home of Kim and Barbara Moat at number 20 Chalmers Ave. The girl, who Sarah knew well, had mousy blonde hair and was walking her dog in the direction of the river. Her name was Kirsty Bentley. She was 15 and lived around the corner in a red brick bungalow at 165 South Street. It was about 3 p.m. and Sarah was one of the last people to see Kirsty alive. Kirsty's family reported her missing about three hours later. Police, friends and locals joined a frantic search but the teenager and her dog were nowhere to be found. In a more organised and extensive search the next day, Abby, the family's sometimes aggressive black Labrador cross, was found unharmed, tied to a tree in scrub near a section of river track Kirsty would often walk. Kirsty's underwear was discovered on a bush nearby. The crucial question, one that dominates this complex case, was whether the scene was staged, and if so, why? On January 17, the day before what would have been Kirsty's 16th birthday, two cannabis growers, John Watts and Brendan Wanhalla, alerted police to a body they'd found about 50 kilometres from Ashburton, deep in a small plantation of immature pine trees on the north side of the Rakaia Gorge, near a place called Camping Gully. It was Kirsty. Access to the site was limited, and carrying her there wouldn't have been easy. Kirsty's mother, Jill, reeled from the smashing finality of hearing the death of her daughter said out loud. Detectives who broke the news watched the family's reaction carefully. They hadn't said where the body was found, but, strangely, Kirsty's father, Sid, who would later fall under suspicion, first asked if she was found by accident or if somebody had seen something. For Kirsty's teenage friends, it was a harsh entry into the worst sort of adult world. Twenty years on... Jasmine Richardson still remembers what she was doing when she was told. Still hoping Kirsty was alive, she was decorating a cake she'd made for her friend's birthday. When I found out they'd found Kirsty, she says, I think I threw it. I was so angry. Kirsty's body was decomposed, but it was soon clear she had died from one heavy blow to the back of her head. She was wearing a black tank top, a blue sarong with a white butterfly pattern, and black Colorado shoes with white soles. The body was placed in the fetal position and covered with sticks and bracken. Her sarong was unpinned but covered her entire lower half. Investigators were struck by a hair scrunchie on Kersey's wrist and the fact her hair was down. She hardly ever left home with her hair untied, particularly when she went for a walk. Pathology results suggested a time of death between 3.30pm and 7pm on the day Kirsty went missing. The decomposition made it impossible to tell if she'd been sexually assaulted. A long list of suspects emerged. Each had to be eliminated. One was a powerfully built farm worker named Barry Hepburn, then 52, now deceased, who was known to walk as Alsatian dog along the river trail and was seen in the area. He had the mental age of a young teenager and lived with his 90-year-old mother. He didn't show up for work the day after Kirsty disappeared, New Year's Day, and when he was next seen, he was uncharacteristically washed and clean-shaven. Rakaia resident Charlie Smith, who repainted his Ford Falcon car after the disappearance and was said to have boasted of a role in Kirsty's death, was also looked at closely. A relatively rare green comma van seen in the area around the time Kirsty went missing, swallowed thousands of police hours, but was never found and its owners never came forward. Kirsty's father Sid, then 47, a machinist for an irrigation firm, and her brother John, then 19, and studying science at the University of Canterbury, also became strong suspects, particularly when Sid changed his account of his movements on the day Kirsty disappeared. But nothing came of the suspicions, and many believe Sid and John were unfairly targeted. The chain-smoking, hard-drinking Sid died in 2015, leaving his house to the Ashburton New Life Church and the Cancer Society, and nothing to his son. More than 20 years after Kirsty was killed, the case remains one of the most perplexing New Zealand homicides, with confoundingly little forensic evidence and numerous disputed theories. There is no doubt police know more than they are letting on, but in interviews for this stuff investigation, they have revealed more than ever before. Before Jill, Kirsty's mother, left for work at 9.30 a.m. on December 31, 1998, Kirsty played her a song that she thought conveyed her feelings for Graham Offord, the new love of her young life. The highlight of the day was going to be Graham coming for dinner then staying the night in her room. Jill was resigned to the relationship with Graham becoming intimate. Sid was not happy about it, but felt he'd lost the argument. John had already left for his berry-picking holiday job. Sid was still in bed, but left to run some errands in Christchurch about 11.15am. Kirsty went into town with a friend. John got home about midday to find only the dog home and answered a phone call from Graham at 1pm. According to John, Kirsty returned home about 2.30 p.m. and he heard her in her bedroom. He told her about the call from Graham and retreated to his room to listen to music and watch TV. Emerging for something to eat, he noticed Abby was gone and assumed Kirsty had taken her for a walk. After another call from Graham about 4.20 p.m., he started thinking Kirsty had been away too long. Jill was home from work shortly after 5pm, and as she pulled into the driveway, John greeted her with, where the fuck is Kirsty? Worried, Jill rushed to the river to look for her daughter. She was back by the time Sid walked through the door, just after 6pm. After some discussion, Sid called the police about 6.20. Jill went back out searching. A local arrived to tell Sid about hearing a dog barking, and Sid left with the man to check the riverbank. Sid, who said he had a migraine, vomited on the way. John had been out searching since 6 p.m. and eventually met Jill on the river track. When they returned, police sent John out on his bike to check another section of the track. Sid picked up John about 8 p.m. and took him home. But John soon headed out again and joined groups of other searchers, including his uncle, until about 12.30 a.m. Sid also headed out searching after 8 p.m. on his own. He later said he checked local areas before deciding to go to Wakanui Beach, a 15-minute drive away, to look there. He was home around midnight. After a cup of coffee at home, Sid and John drove off about 1 a.m. and carried on searching the river track, rugby club grounds, and industrial areas until 3 a.m. Their search efforts and apparently genuine concern were not enough to exclude them from the suspect list. By January 6, the police had moved the Bentley family to a motel so they could forensically examine the house. For Sid, a private, stubborn man who suspected society was increasingly under watch by Big Brother, the search felt like a violation. When a detective asked for his car keys so they could examine his ute, he flung them at the officer and stormed off his already testy relationship with the police, was never the same. Dave Saunders, a search and rescue volunteer, found Kirsty's dog the morning after she disappeared. Saunders, now 77, was a search and rescue veteran by the time he joined a search party fanning out along the Ashburton River track on New Year's Day 1999. He noticed a trail of flattened, damp grass leading off the track and found a small clearing with Kirsty's dog tied to a tree. Abby hadn't made a sound. As he approached, she remained silent. It looked so sad, Saunders says. It wasn't barking or jumping for joy. But when he mentioned Kirsty's name, Abby's ears pricked up. The way Abby was tethered meant she must have been unleashed before she was tied to the tree. Saunders remembers thinking, Someone who knows the dog has done this. Shortly afterwards, searchers found Kirstie's boxer shorts and underpants about 30 metres away on scrub, about two metres from the ground. The discovery became a pivotal part of the investigation. The obvious conclusion was that Kirstie had been restrained on a track she often walked, her underwear removed and her dog hidden nearby. A classic stranger abduction that realised every parent's darkest fear. However, elements of the scene suggested an attempt at deception. There was no evidence of a struggle. Kirsty's underwear showed no sign of contact with the ground, and when her body was later found, her clothing was not ripped or damaged. Police and locals with their dogs had also scoured the area the evening before, calling out for Abby and Kirsty without reaction. The Bentley family and their friends had searched well into the night, calling out Abby's name. If Abby had heard us calling, she would have responded, says Jill, who is remarried and now lives in Invercargill. But maybe Abby had just hunkered down and ignored everybody. On January 3, police tied her up in the same spot and called her from the track. Not a peep. She was also tested for drugs, but nothing was found. If the dog and the underwear were put there later by a random killer, they were taking a terrible risk. If they couldn't bear killing Abby as well as Kirsty, they could have just released a dog somewhere around Ashburton. But what would be the purpose of staging a scene? Maybe it wasn't a stranger abduction, and the culprits wanted to deflect attention the from themselves.
0: I'm Tova O'Brien and each week my podcast, Tova, will bring you big interviews, exclusive stories and expert analysis from politics and beyond. It's a politics pod with a difference, putting the stories that matter to you front and centre. You can find the show at stuff.co.nz forward slash Tova or wherever you get your podcasts. A week is a long time in politics. Whatever happens, we got you.
2: John Winter was surprised to be appointed to lead the Bentley inquiry. The police were in the middle of a restructure and he had been told his role was being disestablished. His leave, starting in mid-January, had been approved. Winter, now a commercial beekeeper in Nelson, arrived in Ashburton when the inquiry was still officially a missing person investigation, but was told to put together a team to look into a homicide. While coy on when the team started to look seriously at Sid and John as suspects, He says a considerable amount of time was spent looking at family dynamics, and those dynamics did not add up to a particularly happy family. Sid was brought up in Workington, an iron-smelting town in the north of England. He became an engineer in the merchant navy in a ship called Timaru Port, where, in 1973, he met Jill, who was training to be a nurse. They went out for a week, and then Sid's ship sailed. Later, Jill was surprised to get a letter from Panama, in which Sid proposed to her. They married in South Canterbury in 1976, after which Sid went back to sea. By the end of 1977, Jill had joined Sid in England, and John was born there in 1979. Sid enjoyed being at sea for months at a time, but agreed to settle in New Zealand so the family could be together. He got a job as an engineer in a plastics factory in Ashburton. Kirstie was born on January 18, 1983. Kirsty was a kind and caring girl, but inclined to be a little precious. Sid doted on her, but their relationship became colder as Kirsty entered her teens. Jill blamed the difficulties on Sid's heavy drinking, which sometimes led to angry outbursts. In 1993, he joined Alcoholics Anonymous and spent time at a rehabilitation clinic in Hannah Springs sid told the press in 2002 that he had been drinking the night before Kirsty went missing and had topped up in christchurch the next day put it this way he said i could put away a 40 ounce bottle of scotch and drive to christchurch without any problems Kirsty struggled at school but was talented in drama and enjoyed writing poetry she wasn't a popular sporty girl but she had a close circle of friends who could count on her for a sympathetic ear and a sensible word. She frowned on drugs or alcohol and was what her friends described as a good girl. John was very bright and in 1998 was doing well at the University of Canterbury where he had completed the first two years of a Bachelor of Science degree. He boarded in Christchurch during the university year and his life at home centred on his darkened bedroom where he played computer games and listened to heavy metal music. He dyed his long hair black to avoid any comparisons with members of the pop group, Hanson. A self-described nerd who stuck to himself, he took on his mother's belief that Kirsty's little princess behaviour was due to her resentment of the fact he was the smart one in the family. He told police he tried to stay out of Kirsty's relationship with Graham Offord and had no feelings about it. Angela Rouse, 37, one of Kirsty's close friends, says they would often spend the weekend at each other's houses. I was part of the furniture at her house, she says, and she was part of the furniture at mine. Jill was quiet and reserved, and Sid just seemed to sit in his chair drinking whiskey from a cup. He could be aggressive when drinking, but not to the stage of hitting anyone, Rouse says. John just stayed in his room. John and Sid never really seemed to get on well. I don't think anyone got on well with Sid. I think that's why Kirsty liked to come down to our house, I think that because we were such a normal family, she kind of craved that sort of stuff. Jill concedes they were not an average, happy family, but it was still a family. I didn't have a close relationship with Sid, Jill says, but we had a routine. John was a loner, but I enjoyed it when he came home at the weekends. The two children had just developed a respect that came with age, and when he was home, he watched Kirsty's TV with her. Having said that, they were chalk and cheese. Jill says Sid's alcoholism set him apart, but he worked hard and remained a good provider. He was in his own foggy world, and for the large part, I didn't know what was on his mind. He could be bitter towards me because I didn't invite a close relationship. I'm Simon
1: Bridges, here to tell you about my new podcast, It's called Generally Famous and it's starting on August 3. Sort of celebrity DJ or something, I've got you at Ibiza. Hands up in the air. Let me explain, let me tell you how you should feel. You're sounding just an incy-wincy but nationalistic. (laughs) That's illegal by the way, trigger warning, don't do that. I can do highbrow. I was hoping for a story of you at the end in a gutter. Each week I'll be talking to a Generally Famous but always interesting guests mm, about their life, loves, and what makes them tick. Bruce, wow. yes, this is my podcast. I also have a print story, buddy, okay? You can listen through stuff.co.nz and wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I am a broadcaster, that's right. <laughs> Proudly brought to you by Trade Depot. On New Year's Eve 1998, Anita White was manning the store on Beach Road in Ashburton that she'd owned for 15 years with her husband. She was thinking about having a drink with her staff later on. When she talked to a police officer the next day, her memory was already hazy, but she remembered being out the back bagging eggs when Kirsty came in to buy a 50-cent mixture of sweets in the afternoon. Her till showed a 50-cent sale at 3.50pm. Further details, though, were a struggle. She thought Kirsty was wearing a black cardigan and a white t-shirt and couldn't recall whether she had her dog. White knew Kirsty both as a customer and as someone she regularly saw walking her dog in the area. I often thought she looked a bit of a lonesome kid, she says. She was often on her own. A quiet wee thing. Anita White's sighting of Kirsty was fairly typical of those police received in any investigation. It lacked detail and provided information inconsistent with other sightings. But if White was correct, Kirsty was still alive at 3.50pm. But did she call past the shop at the end of her walk, or go home first, and then go out again? Gary Marsh, who was mowing the lawn at his property in Dobson Street, one block north from Kirsty's home, is adamant he saw her in her blue sarong with Abby on his street about 4pm. He didn't know Kirsty, but recognised her from police images. Security footage shows Kirsty with her friend Leanne Jellyman shopping in Ashburton earlier that day, wearing the same clothes. At least a few things were certain. After a day in town with her friend Leanne, Kirsty was at home at 2.38 pm when she made a telephone call to Graham's house and spoke to his brother. Police were also reasonably sure Kirsty left to take Abby for a walk about 3 pm on the day of her disappearance. Within four days, they had five sightings of her walking Abbey on Chalmers Ave, heading towards the Ashburton River. Two of the sightings gave no description of her clothing. Of the others, two said she was wearing a dark top, one mentioned a black top and blue sarong. Kim Moat believed he saw Kirsty wearing a cream tank top and dark trousers. It wasn't unusual for Kirsty to go for frequent walks with Abby. A sarong was hardly suitable gear for walking a dog, which made it possible Kirsty had got changed before taking Ebby out and changed back to her original clothes when she got home. No one reported seeing Kirsty on the track that led along the river from the bottom of Chalmers Ave. Going west appeared to be Kirsty's preferred route, although she sometimes took the east route, even if some thought it was frequented by unsavoury types. There were also numerous sightings of vehicles similar to Sid's distinctive Holden Kingswood Ute. One was from a woman who was pulling out of a petrol station in Methvin between Ashburton and the Rakaia Gorge, and knew her cars. That put the Holden in in the gorge area around 5pm. Sid later called the woman, but she refused to talk to him. The quality of the sightings left many things up in the air and, importantly, didn't rule out the involvement of her family in her death.
0: Most GP practices in New Zealand are closed to new patients. What do people do if they can't see a GP? It's a real concern. A lot of people end up in the emergency department. We know those are overrun and we know that many, many people are turning up with Conditions which really should be treated in primary care. We really need to look at the funding. We need to look at how that is distributed because we know if more money is put into primary health care then we're we're actually stopping people going to hospital. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Gavin Briggs sat with a comatose Sid on the night he died in June 2015 but wasn't expecting a confession in Sid's last gasps. No way in hell was he involved, Briggs says. He was persecuted to a degree because he was a soft target. I'd back him. He made the mistake of letting alcohol get in the way of his life. Briggs and his brother Roger owned Brainer Irrigation, Sid's employer when Kirsty was killed. Sid worked on a lathe in the company's machine shop, making parts for irrigation equipment, and was highly regarded. Briggs says although his drinking was noticeable, it didn't seem to affect his work. I've met a lot of personalities employing people, Briggs says. You know instinctively if you can trust them, and Sid Bentley you could trust. Kirsty was the apple of his eye, there's no doubt about that. The way he spoke about her. John, I never heard about him. Briggs's faith in Sid is not shared by Greg Williams, who took charge of the inquiry after Winter left for a Nelson posting. Williams is now a detective superintendent in Wellington, heading the National Organised Crime Group. William's scenario went something like this. Sid arrived home sometime shortly after 4pm to find John had killed Kirsty, perhaps accidentally. Together they bundled her body into a tarpaulin, put her into Sid's ute, and Sid drove to the Rakai Gorge to hide her body. John was left at home to deal with Jill, and Sid arrived back about 6.15pm. Sid, or John, then planted Abby near the track. When Williams put the theory to Jill, she was stunned. The idea of it hurt, she says, but I was determined to understand it. Jill believes the timings are too tight given the drive to the Rakaia Gorge, about 80 minutes return, and the time needed to dispose of the body. She can't see Sid forming such a detailed plan in a matter of minutes while reeling from the death of his beloved daughter. Sid was a proud Englishman, and I believe he wouldn't have considered a cover-up, she says. He was enormously fond of his daughter, and if John was responsible, I am certain he would have rung the police and stood by his son. She doesn't believe John, cut from the same cloth as Sid, would have covered for Sid either. And to suggest John was jealous about Kirsty's new boyfriend is just silliness, she says. Sid originally said he had driven to Christchurch to drop off a water blaster and get some tools on the day Kirsty vanished, after which he spent a couple of hours in Littleton before driving home. But police had possible sightings of him in Hotel Ashburton, on the edge of town, about 4pm. A witness said a man with an English accent who matched Sid's description was in the queue in front of him buying cigarettes. A tiller receipt seemed to corroborate the account. Then... In October 2000, Sid changed his story after apparently banging his head on a cupboard. The new version of events had him coming back from Christchurch about 2.30pm. He said he was within 30 seconds of his home when he decided to drive to Wakanui Beach to get over a migraine. Confusingly, Sid retracted that news story when spoken to again by police not long before his death. In an unusually frank interview, Williams says the change in Sid's story showed he lied from the first night Kirsty went missing. That night, he says, I've just driven all the way back from Christchurch, when in fact, that does not seem to be the case at all. Williams says police are happy they know where Sid was until 2.30 p.m. And clearly, he was home to make the call alerting police about 6.20 p.m. But where was Sid in between? Williams remains convinced the scene with Abby was staged to mislead the inquiry and believes the dog was put there about 6.30 pm. No evidence, he says, puts Kirsty near the scene where Abby was found. Again, that was strange and not consistent. Williams believes the person who tied up Abby near the track had to have known the area and, more importantly, Kirsty's usual routes in walking the dog. The sightings of Kirsty after 3:50 p.m. The dairy and Dobson Street were critical, but unfortunately not bulletproof because the clothing descriptions were different. It's very likely, Williams says, that Kirsty did not go walking in her sarong and special shoes and instead wore black track pants and possibly a white top. She then returned home and changed, perhaps to go out again in her sarong to be seen in Dobson Street. Her shoes did not contain any material from the river track, and a white singlet was the only item of clothing police could not account for. Williams has not ruled out a random killing, but says it does not fit with the Abbey scene, and the careful and respectful way the body was hidden. The fact she wasn't buried suggests the killer was in a hurry, yet the choice of sight indicated a determination the body would not be found for a long time. Random attacks, Williams says, are so rare that in most cases investigators will put randomness to the side. As for John, Williams says his account changed about whether Kirsty told him she was leaving for the walk and the manner in which it was done. He would not elaborate. All this meant Sid and John became significant persons of interest, Williams says, and continue to be because we have still not resolved key aspects of timing and placement. Sid and Jill separated about the same time Sid went to police and changed his story. Jill says that was not the reason the pair split. Rather, she says, she'd grown to dislike the alcoholic I was living with. Jill is still mystified about why Sid lied. I can only wonder if he was doing something he wouldn't have wanted to be publicly aired. Again, a very proud Englishman. He took his secret to the grave. It doesn't fit the timing and I couldn't imagine him hurting Kirsty.
0: Today on Newsable, the coalition government is considering reintroducing the exporting of live animals after it was banned by Labour last year. What one animal welfare expert has to say about it? Plus, can rugby and politics ever really be separated? We're talking controversial haka ahead of this weekend's latest round of super rugby matches and the unusual form of currency a US library is accepting for fines. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your Podcasts.
2: John Winter, the initial inquiry head, is not nearly as strong on Sid and John's involvement as Williams. Can we say categorically one hundred percent we were satisfied with all the answers? Winter says. Probably not. Sid's story had significant inconsistencies which he was caught on. Once those inconsistencies were discovered, that raised alarm bells for us, and he got a lot more attention accordingly. There were all sorts of questions and innuendo around him, but at the end of the day, it doesn't make him the murderer. We simply had no evidence. Both John and Sid were intelligent but unsophisticated, Winter says. I have a strong feeling their unsophistication would have led to a breakdown reasonably quickly if they had been involved. There is no evidence whatsoever that satisfied me of their involvement. Detective Inspector Greg Merton, Canterbury District Crime Manager, is now in charge of the file. He has looked at a number of other scenarios, including the possible involvement of Russell Tully, the killer of two work and income staff in their Ashburton office in 2014. Tully had a good alibi. Jason Frandy, a loner from the South Canterbury town of Waimate, who killed a hitchhiker and then himself in a forest in 2012, also came into Merton's radar, but was ruled out. Merton says police have evidence that hasn't been made public that would indicate who the type of offender is in this case. He believes a piece of information from the right person could solve the murder. There are many unanswered questions, he says. Was it an abduction from the riverbank? Was it a local or someone passing through? Could it have been a neighbour or someone on her walking route? Was it someone close to her? It would be immensely satisfying to resolve this case, not only for Jill and Kirsty's wider friends and family, but because it is a mystery, and I personally would very much like to know what happened. John Bentley, now in his 40s, lives overseas and is finishing a doctorate in astronomy. He says he is just trying to live my life as normally as I can. Having a good circle of friends helps. He has found it frustrating that he has remained a person of interest in the case, for so long. Unfortunately dad for whatever reason could not or would not clear himself and therefore I could not be a hundred percent cleared. I know I didn't have anything to do with Kirsty's death but there is nothing I can do to clear myself. I have to wait until they find the killer and that will then prove my innocence. Having to be passive and wait to be proven innocent is very frustrating. John was formally interviewed by police about three or four times and doesn't remember being pressed on any inconsistencies. I remember not seeing her leave, he says, but I think I heard the gate shut. I can't remember if she told me she was going for a walk, or I just presumed it from hearing the gate. I stand by what I did say when I was interviewed. His gut feeling is that his father played no part in Kirsty's disappearance. He was always super prideful, and a bit overly principled. If he had anything to do with it, he'd have gone to the police immediately. If I had done it, he would have marched me up to the police station and got me to confess, because that was the right thing to do. Also, Kirsty was his favourite. If he had hurt her in any way, he'd not have been able to hide it. Sid and John never talked to each other about the suspicions. I never asked him about whether he did it or what he was doing on the day, and he never asked me, John says. I guess we both kind of assumed that we had nothing to do with it, and so there was no point in asking questions about the obvious. Like Jill, John believes Sid's movements might have been embarrassing, but irrelevant. John wasn't into doing many of the things that people of his age did in Ashburton. Partying, sports, clubs. But he says he wasn't a recluse. On his university holidays, he would go out to see his friends, or hang around home. I definitely wasn't super sociable, he says. As my family were kind of distant with each other, most nights mum and dad would be in the living room, dad complaining about how everything is wrong and mum passively not responding. Kirsty and myself would just spend time in our rooms. Growing up, he and Kirsty just seemed to annoy each other. Kirsty was trying to be popular and it was an embarrassment to have a nerd brother, he says. However, I had spent most of the year at university and suddenly having a brother at university was cool and so Kirsty would tolerate me more. His relationship with Sid soured because he called his father out over spreading rumours about Jill's new partner, Noel. Dad hated the rumours that people in Ashburton had spread about us, but he was perfectly willing to believe and spread the rumours about Noel. I called him a hypocrite and he got angry. His father's alcoholism also made him more negative and withdrawn from the family. John says his comment, where the fuck is Kirsty, to his mother, after arriving home from work on New Year's Eve, should not be misconstrued. My language around people I'm comfortable with tends to have a few swears in it, especially in an informal situation. At the time, I was surprised that Kirsty had been away for so long. Kirsty had just gone to walk the dog, something that would take maybe 30 minutes, and she hadn't mentioned doing anything else. I was a bit surprised, but not that worried. What I said would have been taken by Mum is nothing unusual in terms of tone. About five years ago, on the 15th anniversary of Kirsty's death, Ruth Cox, now 37, visited 165 South Street, where Sid lived alone and was dying of cancer. He looked like a man who had had a very hard life, she says. Inside the now tired-looking home, she found him sitting in his armchair watching television. They sat and shared their happy memories of Kirsty, who was Ruth's best buddy at Ashburton College. As she was about to leave, Sid gave Ruth a sun-faded photo of Kirsty in a wooden frame. It was a big deal, Ruth says. That picture meant the world to him. He wouldn't have just given it to any of Kirsty's friends. The photo is one of the last taken of Kirsty. She thought it made her look fat. Cox likes it because her friend looks happy and carefree. Cox, who still lives in Ashburton, is one of several of Kirsty's friends who wondered if Sid harbored an awful secret. If he had played a role in Kirsty's death, he would have suffered horribly, she believes. As they reminisced about Kirsty on that 15th anniversary, she felt at least he had someone to talk to. Cox says Kirsty told her Sid could get angry when he was drunk, but she never mentioned anything about him getting physical. John, with whom she had a relationship after Kirsty's death, never talked about the case with her. She was appalled at his treatment after he was identified as a suspect. It was disgusting, she says. In Christchurch, when John went back to university, I would stay with him on the weekends, and we'd walk down the street and people would spit on him, yell abuse through the car window.
0: Pre-season, you and I also talked about how it was very clear that everyone wanted to make this season exciting. They wanted to shape stuff up a bit. Do you reckon they're delivering on that?
2: Yeah, look, I think the challenge for Rugby right now is to get some of the limelight back. And so they've looked at uh, the way they want to play the game. They've certainly made some adjustments to the referees. The games have certainly been faster. I think you're seeing an effect on the teams. I think everything they've tried to this point has worked really well. We've seen way less TMO. And I think the world wanted to see that. But I think overall, I think everyone in, in and around the game is really, really happy with what they're producing.
0: For news and sport that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. Newsable Sport is proudly brought to you by Sky, your sport unrivaled. Mark, if we look at News Hub, the potential of that closing its entire operation and June, the cuts at TVNZ, what's at risk here?
2: Well, look, we get into this whole thing, you know, democracy is at risk. But News Hub, from their first days, always
1: tried to do things a little bit differently and may have been considered a little bit more sort of kick-ass and less respectful
2: to the politicians. But you need that. I mean, our job is not to be sort of cheerleaders for whoever. It should be to sort of question and and to keep people informed. If you don't have a news media sort of calling people out, it's the Wild West.
0: For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts.
2: New Zealand remembers Kirsty Bentley as the victim of a dreadful, unsolved crime. Friends like Jasmine Richardson, who shared Kirsty's obsession with the Backstreet Boys and crush on Prince William, remember her in more personal ways. She was just innocent, Richardson says. It shouldn't have happened. That's probably how I want to remember her. That innocent girl who was into Winnie the Pooh, Backstreet Boys, and just a good friend. Identifying the culprit or culprits would allow Kirsty to finally rest, Richardson says. Every New Year's, I think about her. For 20 years, there's not once that I haven't looked up at the sky and wished her a happy New Year. Even in another 20 years, if it's still not solved, she'll never be forgotten. Ending a story like this almost inevitably leads to clichés. Someone out there knows something. Police will never give up. A promising life snuffed out before it had really begun. A cold case where secrets may have been taken to the grave. The importance of a resolution for the family's sake. Closure. The phrases are well-worn, but no less true or poignant. One cliche that hasn't been mentioned so far is the perfect crime. Someone got away with the murder of Kirsty Bentley. So far.
1: That was The Killer Blow on the long read from Stuff, written by Blair Ensor and Martin Van Bainen, read by Blair Ensor and produced by me, Michael Wright. Now, instead of boring credits, you get the Q&A. Hi, Blair. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm good. Here we are at the end, doing the start. Um, But we're doing that for a reason. This story was published in 2020, and it has been somewhat overtaken By events, So um, tell us what's happened in the Kirsty Bentley case this week, in July 2022.
2: So it's been an interesting week in the Kirsty Bentley case because the new head of the inquiry, as you would have heard uh, from the story, Greg Merton, has come out uh, and said that he's he's essentially shifted the focus of the investigation. So the investigation had zeroed in on Sid and John, Kirsty's brother and father, uh, but now uh, Merton, after reviewing elements of the file, says that he's pretty comfortable that they weren't involved. He's not saying that he's ruled them out 100%, but he says it's more likely that Kirsty was raped and murdered by a stranger who would grabbed her from the street as she walked her dog back on New Year's Eve 1998. Right. So
1: as we heard in that story then, there was a pretty detailed description in there of the police theory for how Sid and John might have been responsible for Kirsty's death and the disposal
2: of her body, in their view. So what's changed
1: then that that is no longer
2: their focus? Well, Greg Merton has spent quite a bit of time looking at uh, Sid's movements. So according to uh, Merton, there are three witnesses who put Sid in Littleton on the afternoon of... uh, you know New Year's Eve 1998 now if those witnesses and Merton seems to hold put quite a lot of weight on those witnesses if they are correct then there's no way in his eyes that Sid could make it back didn't have enough time to no, get back didn't to have enough option. time to get back to Ashburton and therefore if Sid isn't involved then John can't really be involved either because John hasn't got a driver license and John's also home at five o'clock at night when Jill arrives home so there's a very small window that these things could happen not to mention the fact there's not a shred of evidence in the house um, or no there's no blood in the house no evidence she died at home at home or in Sid's vehicle there's no like if he's if he's used his vehicle to transport her up into uh, the Rakaia Gorge then there's there's no evidence there either obviously when Sid changed his story um, and said he was went out to Wakanui Beach this is after he Changed the story to say he got back to Ashburton yeah, earlier. Earlier was a
1: crucial part. Yeah,
2: yeah, and that was after these witnesses had come forward suggesting that they'd seen him at a bottle store. Well, Merton says those witnesses actually came forward quite a long time after the fact, and therefore their evidence is you know somewhat unreliable. You know, they're not people that reported this immediately after the fact. I saw yeah. Sid in Ashburton at four o'clock yesterday, or anything like that. Correct.
1: And talk to me more about this change of Sid's story because that was kind of one of the big keys here was, first of all, he was in Littleton and not back in anywhere near enough time. And then 18 months later, he bangs his head and suddenly remembers. It's a bit strange.
2: Yeah, so Greg Merton, when he takes over uh, the file in 2014, he goes and sees Sid. Um, That's not long before Sid dies in 2015. And Sid kind of recants that story and reverts to his original story. And Merton puts that down to Sid's alcoholism and the fact that he's got a terrible memory. And obviously, as we've already discussed, you've got those timings in Littleton, or the, the witnesses in Littleton who place him there. So that adds weight to his initial story. Pretty good alibi, by yeah. the sounds. Yeah, one would think so. The other key thing that has surfaced this week, um, if, if we're pushing Sid and John to one side, is that Merton says that he believes that the person that killed Kirstie is a loner, someone that likely lived in Ashburton and was either a cannabis user or cannabis grower. Now, the area where Kirsty's dog was found... And sort of along the Ashburton River, right, was there, there were plots of cannabis found in and around there, um, and the area up at Rakaia Re- was a known cannabis growing area, and obviously the people that found her body were looking for cannabis, right? Um, but Merton says he's holding on to another piece of evidence, and he won't say what that is, that you know points the finger at this being a. a cannabis grower or cannabis user i guess you could probably surmise from that that it's probably a physical bit of evidence mm-hmm. um, but he, he won't he won't be drawn at all on that and so these two places as we heard a bit in the story they're
1: quite far apart where abby the dog was found that is that pretty close to ashburton to the home or is that up the river a bit as well
2: no no it's 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 a short walk from from Kersey's home. okay but um, her body was found quite some distance up the gorge. yeah, so fifty kilometers away in Rakaia Gorge okay.
1: So it's a long way apart in two places that are ostensibly both linked to cannabis
2: growing. Yes yes now I, I can't hundred percent tell you that there was cannabis like I, I don't think there was um, evidence of cannabis growing immediately in the area around where um Kersey's Dog was found, but I, th- I think that the kind of the Ashburton Riverbed, or along that Ashburton River, is uh, you know, generally speaking, yeah, generally speaking, is thought to be right. Yeah. yeah. And in revealing all of this, this this change in tact, Merton has also um, announced a hundred thousand dollar reward for information leading to the identity and, and conviction of the person or persons responsible for Kirsty's death. So, I mean, it's a pretty big. Pretty big development, um, and there's been plenty of interest in the case. Yeah, it's a big development in a case that's been, I mean, this is, this is a
1: long-running case. This is, what, 25 years nearly? That's, there's, not many, there's not many like it in our history. We don't have many like this. We can just say the name of a victim, and people know, I, I know that case. I know the, the bones of that case just because it's so familiar
2: for one and strange for another. Yeah, I think it's arguably the most sensational unsolved murder in New Zealand, um, and let's hope that, you know, that status changes in the not-too-distant future. Let's hope.
1: All right, thanks, Blair. Now, here you get the credits. This episode was edited by Sam Scannell. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dudding. If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.
0: If you liked listening to this pod, help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz slash support.